If you're reading your bulletin and you're a guest with us this morning, I am not Chris Granberry. Just so you know. So there's no confusion. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want anything odd to break out here. So uh, you, we've just heard John 15, 1 through 11 read. And you might be thinking, okay, what does that have to do with Psalm 119? And if you don't know, we are studying Psalm 119 as a church. We're uh, gaining many, many blessings from that chapter. And, and uh, it's been a, a, certainly a, a great encouragement to me and I think to many of you. But what does John 15 that we just heard read have to do with Psalm 119? Well, <clears throat> what's the theme of Psalm 119? It's holiness, isn't it? The pursuit of holiness. And the, the psalm that uh, is, has been in front of us for the past few months uh, is all about developing a heart of holiness, des- developing a deep desire for the things of God. For example, in Psalm 119, he says in verse 5, Oh, that my ways would be steadfast in keeping your statutes. It's a plea of the heart of a person truly interested in seeking God. Oh, that my ways would be that. And, and you continue, and every, every single stanza has a focus just like that one, like the second stanza. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I will meditate on your precepts, verse 15, and fix my eyes on your ways. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And on and on he goes. Give me understanding, verse 34, incline my heart to your testimonies. So Psalm 119 is about developing a heart of holiness. John 15 is God's means of developing holiness. So John 15 complements Psalm 119. In fact, uh, you don't have to be a long-term Christian to know that all of Scripture complements Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a summary, really, of all of Scripture. We find every true and important doctrine in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the heart of holiness. John 15 is the means to that holiness. You want to become holy? You want to develop a heart of holiness? I hope that the answer is yes to that question. Then... In John 15, we discover how God does that. And so this morning, I just want to spend a little bit of time in John 15 to help you understand this important connection between having that heart of holiness and God making it happen. Wanting God and then God fulfilling that desire. John 15 tells us how it works. Now, if you look at the lives of successful Christians or God followers throughout human history, you'll see a consistent pattern develop. Uh, you look at Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Jacob, uh, David, Paul, the apostles, early Christians like you know, all, all the church fathers, um, later Christians like Hudson, Taylor, Adoniram Judson, Jim Elliott. They all had something in common, and it was this, pain. They all experienced difficulty, hardship, trial. God took them through certain things in their lives to get them to a point of holiness. So there is a direct correlation between the experience of trials and 
production or fruit in the Christian life. There's a connection between pain and holiness. You want holiness? There's only one path (laughs) to holiness. Only one. John 15 tells us what it is. A.W. Tozer said this, God won't use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. You know, okay, well, maybe I don't want to be used greatly. (laughs) Just use me a little. Um, I'll be happy with that. I'll be content with just a little use. But Tozer and many other men men and women of faith aren't satisfied with just a little. They want more of God. Be to be more useful. God won't use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Why is that? Why is it that God feels it's necessary to hurt people? You know, this may expose a little bit of your theology here, but what is it? Why do you think that God needs to hurt people if that, in fact, is the case? Why do so many Christians, even the ones I've mentioned, have to go through difficulty before God can see them being useful in his kingdom. Well, there's this thing called the fall of man that took place a long time ago uh, when the first humans walked this planet. Uh, They were created in the image of God and in perfect union and fellowship with God, but because of their sin and weakness, they pulled away from that relationship and went through what's called the fall of man, the fall from the perfection that God created them in. And with that fall, or maybe because of that fall, there developed a desire for independence from God. All right, you'll see that even beginning with Adam and Eve. They, they began to develop an independence of God, and, and that independence grew and grew and grew throughout human history, and now we experience that without even thinking about it. We're, we don't like to be told what to do or how to do it. We don't want to be depending on anybody. I can do it myself. Don't worry about it. I can take care of it. We act like this with each other, let alone God. Right? But this is the very process that God is working on in the life of every single believer, Getting them past that point of of independence uh, or through the experience of independence to the point of dependence on God, which is God's initial intent. He, He didn't create us to be independent, autonomous beings. He created us to have fellowship with and dependence on our loving creator. He doesn't expect you or, or, or desire you to live out there on your own, trying to make it work. He desires close union, close dependence, not the opposite. So John 15 addresses this, doesn't it? This whole idea of of pruning and bearing more fruit and all this. Um, So let's let's dig into this chapter, well, these, these few verses that were read to you earlier from John 15. This idea of abiding um, in me or or remaining in me, which is the uh, key words here in John 15, uh, are necessary or integral parts to a God-honoring life, a life of uh, useful holiness. If, if, If you never figure out 
what it means to abide in Christ or, or remain in Christ, then you will never be a fruit-producing, content and joyful believer. You will always live on the, on the perimeter and, and never really experience that joy and rest that God offers to all who will simply walk with him. So look again at John 15. And let me read for you a few of these verses again. Jesus said, I am the vine, the true vine. My father is the vine dresser, or he's the gardener. Every branch that is in me does, uh, every, every branch that, uh, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That is, the gardener takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll bear more fruit. We are those branches. If we are in Christ, we are those branches. And what is, what is Christ's desire for us, his branches? To bear fruit. No one wants a vine that doesn't produce grapes. Now, that's called a weed. And so we don't want that. God doesn't want that. And so he prunes us. He, he takes away necessary things and, and uh, sharpens us in different ways so that we will be useful and, and holy before him, dependent on him, fellowship with him. Uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I, I read this horticultural bulletin and it said this, the vine's ability to produce growth increases each year but without intensive pruning, the plant weakens and its crop diminishes. Mature branches must be pruned hard to achieve maximum yield. So, uh, what is true of physical branches in the vineyard is certainly true of spiritual branches in our lives, isn't it? Uh, let's, let's turn this horticultural language to spiritual language for a second. The Christian's ability to produce fruit increases each year. But with in, without intensive pruning, Christians weaken and their spiritual fruit diminish. Mature Christians must be pruned hard to achieve maximum yield. This is what's going on in your life. You're wondering, okay, why, why is this Christian life seeming to get more difficult, not less? I thought the more mature I was, the, the longer I lived with Christ, the easier this program would get. And yet... Here I am in my age, going through things I never dreamed I could possibly handle. You know, sometimes young Christians dream about the days in the future when God's hand of correction is not so heavy and his pruning isn't so sharp and cuts so deeply. Uh, if you're a young Christian, you may have those type of thoughts in your mind right now. Uh, if you're an older Christian, you can remember having those kind of thoughts, can't you? Um, Remembering, man, I can't wait until the day that this or that doesn't bother me. And you're still here being bothered by all sorts of things. Um, young believers think that there has to come a day when uh, all of God's sanctifying work, his pruning will result in a less stressful Christian experience, a little easier road to walk, right? I remember thinking, I can't wait till I'm married so I don't have to deal with sexual temptation. That didn't work out so well. What's the deal here? Um, I remember thinking, I can't wait till I'm more mature believer so I can kind of be on spiritual cruise control. I remember thinking about, I can't wait till my kids get a little older so I don't have to worry so much about them. I worry more now about kids than I ever have. And my kids are all out of the house, supposedly. <laughs> Friends, this never happens. 
The truth of the matter is that the more mature you become, the more intense the pruning becomes. But the good news is that the more pruning that takes place, the more fruitful your life will be. The more holiness you will experience, the more joy and rest you will have. This is what verse 11 says. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said in John 15, so that your joy, my joy would be in you and that your joy would be full. I don't know about you, but fullness of joy sounds good to me. That isn't possible without pruning, without the pursuit of holiness. That joy isn't available. So when you're a younger Christian or a young branch, your pruning is more about outward things, like, you know, uh, speaking foolishly, acting uh, out of line, things that are external, uh, saying things that you, you shouldn't say, uh, doing things you shouldn't do. That's the, 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 the elementary form of pruning. God starts snipping that stuff out of your life. And uh, by way of experience, you realize, you know, that wasn't the smartest thing to say or do. Um, and so you learn. God, God and, and, it's, and it's relatively, you know, and that word relatively is important. It's relatively painless compared to the pruning that's coming. Because the pruning for a more mature believer is internal. It's not external. It's not something that you can see and clip and it's gone. It's internal that you have to hunt and peck and dig and try to figure it out. A lot of times it it's deals with much more significant and serious things than simply speaking out of line. Um, so what, what God uh, is going to do in your life may be a, a, a difficulty, may be a painful thing, but it's going to result in dramatic fruit production. Do you remember what Jesus told his followers in uh, Luke 14 about what it meant to follow him? He says, you can't be my follower unless you give up everything, right? He didn't say unless you give up some things. If, if you just give up 50% of it, you can be my follower. No, he said if you give up everything. Um, he, this is a critically important point. Many superficial followers of Jesus at that very moment, and I think this is connected to John 6, at that very moment they left him. He had thousands and thousands of followers. And when he started making these kind of comments and demands, the crowds went away to no surprise of anyone. Um, they didn't want to give up everything. But those who did continue to follow him, and they were few, those who did continue to remain or abide in and with Christ went on to experience a loving and wise heavenly gardener that pruned, continued to prune in their life that resulted in much fruit. The reason that we are here this morning worshiping together is because of the pruning that took place in the life of the original disciples. And we, we could bring up a few examples of this, not the least of which would be Peter. We, we all know the stories of Peter and the pruning that went on in his life. Had it not been for the faithful, loving, and gentle gardener in Peter's life, you and I wouldn't be sitting here this morning. And I think that's the case with many of our uh, predecessing Christians. 
We see this in Abraham's life, don't we? The way God pruned him and, and, and cut away not just the external things that were easy to get at, but the internal things that caused him to tick. God got to those things, didn't he, in Abraham's life? Yeah. So in, in mature pruning, the shears of the gardener will cut closer to the core of who you are. In Abraham, Abraham's experience, who was Abraham? What was his identity? It was Isaac, wasn't it? Did God prune that? Oh, my word. Talk about pruning. That, that might have severed my artery had that been me. But God was faithful and loving and kind and patient and gentle with Abraham, like he is with you and I. And he pruned that thing that was the most hindrance to Abraham's progress in the face and his, his walk of holiness. His identity being his son instead of being God. And this is what God is up to. Pr pruning is about getting at the problem. Cutting away your independence. Making you more holy. Because with holiness comes joy or happiness. So God intensifies the pruning. Um, he, he is strategic in his process. He isn't just whacking away to see leaves fly. Um, he, he's intentionally working with great skill to cut away specific things in our lives that may not even be wrong or bad, just in the way. Right? And I know I have those things in my life, and I'm sure you do too. James addresses this in his book in chapter 1. He calls it the testing of faith. That's what he calls pruning, testing of faith. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, before you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So in order for you to experience steadfastness, there must be some pruning. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, not lacking in anything. You want to be perfect and complete, not lacking in anything? Pruning must happen, is James's point. Um, have you ever thought about the fact that a test of faith isn't a test of faith unless it takes you beyond the last test. Your test, by nature, can't get easier. <laughs> or they're not tests. This is what James is saying. This isn't going to get easier, folks. It's, it's something that increases with intensity because the core of the issue still remains deep within you. Sometimes you may be going through pruning and may think that God is being an un fair gardener, um, unreasonable. I mean, this is more than, than anyone should have to deal with. You may be tempted to pull back or to keep God at bay, not allow him to cut deeper and prune more because of the pain, because you've reached your limit. That's it, God. I'm out. Uh, how, how deep does the gardener have to cut before you say those kind of things? Like, I'm done. You can't go any deeper. That's it. I want to encourage you to trust your heavenly gardener. I want to show you from John 15, from Psalm 119, as we continue to study there, that if we're going to achieve holiness, if we're going to experience that joy and fullness that is offered us by God in Christ, that this is the only path. Um, and as difficult as it is, it's not without encouragement and strengthening by the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, it's not without the joy that, that God brings and, and drops in your lap from time to time to give you strength for the day. God knows that we are but dust, doesn't he? And he doesn't take us beyond what we're able. Um, even though sometimes we feel that way. I just want to encourage you this morning. Friends, as, as if you're with me in, in pursuit of holiness, um, to trust God in the, in the process. It, it's not an easy road that we've chosen, or I should say that God has chosen for us. But let me give you some pruning truths when you've, that might encourage you when you feel like you might be at your, your limit, your end, and you're ready to, to put a stop to the whole thing and just say it's not worth it, sorry. Let me give you some pruning truths. First is this, God doesn't apply pain when a more pleasant method would do. The only reason that you go through what you're going through is because that's the only thing that works in your life. Blaise Pascal, one of history's greatest thinkers said this, pain was the loving and legitimate violence necessary to produce my liberty. And he wasn't a dummy. Pain was the loving and legitimate violence necessary to produce my liberty. What is it going to take to produce your liberty from the burdens that you carry? If God is at work in you, it's not a, a walk on the yellow brick road. It's, it's a difficult thing. Secondly, not every painful experience is necessarily God's pruning. Going to court and paying a speeding ticket isn't necessarily God's pruning. That's called your stupidity. All right? Uh, although God obviously uses our stupidity, I mean, I, can't, I could give you a long list, but then we'd have to make this a sermon series of John's stupidity and how God used it. But not every painful experience is necessarily God's pruning. There's things called consequences in our lives, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're heartbreaking because your child is making foolish choices. God certainly uses, but it's not necessarily God sending your children through hell so that you can go through deeper pruning, God will use all things for good. We've heard that before, right? Somewhere in Romans. So, not every painful experience is necessarily God's pruning. Thirdly, the pain of pruning comes now, but the fruit comes later. You know, so many times I talk to people who, who say, you know, I'm just unwilling to continue. There's, there's no, I don't see any benefit of this, the Christian experience. And so I've, tr I've given God a chance and there's, there's not the, the benefit here, so I'm done now. This is an important point, Christ followers, people who are being pruned. The pruning, the pain of pruning is now. The joy of fruit is later. It's called the law of the harvest, right? In, in this valley, more than any other Christians, we should know the law of harvest. We do this, and then later in the fall, we get this. We go through the difficulty so that we can enjoy this later. It is the very same in our spiritual life. 
in, in growing in holiness and experiencing rest and joy and peace and all those things that are, you know, in the forefront of our, our desire. This must precede that. It's an important spiritual principle. Fourthly, and this is, a, this is good news for those of you who are in, in it right now, pruning does not last indefinitely. You think, man, this has been going on too long. I don't know if I can hang on any longer. Well, hang on because pruning does not last indefinitely. Um, God will accomplish uh, his purposes in pruning, in pruning. And you may think, well, <laughs> how long is it going to go on? I mean, this has been years. Um, let me say some important things right now for those of you who are going to be going through pruning and, and you can sense that you're of the type that may throw in the towel. Uh, many times pruning continues until you figure out what it is that God wants to accomplish, what it is that he's pruning. Um, you've heard, maybe you haven't, but there used to be a song, take another lap around Mount Sinai until you've learned your lesson. Well, how many laps are you going to go around Mount Sinai until you figure out what it is that God's de doing, what's he dealing with? You know, well, how do I get to know that? Well, how do I discover that? Well, in order to get the benefit of the pruning and to see it come to an end, you need to discover what God is pruning. And he, you do that by, it's, it's kind of like sitting in a dentist chair. Um, a few months back, I had a pain in my upper left jaw, and I couldn't identify exactly where it was. So I went to the dentist, and, you know, he does the classic, get out the tool and start tapping on teeth. He found it. And... Right away, he found it. Maybe two or three taps, and he found the tooth pretty quickly. This is what we need to go through. When, 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 when you are confused about where God is pruning you, ask yourself this simple question. Where does it hurt? Where does it hurt in my life right now? That's what God is pruning. God's trying to get you to pay attention to where it hurts. Is it your finances, your relationships, your employment? Maybe you need to bring in a trusted Christian friend to sit with you and tap on your spiritual teeth with you. Does it hurt here? How about here, here? Ouch, that's it. Um, so here are, here are some spiritual teeth for you, some areas of pruning that are typical in our Christian lives, all right? First, the people that you love the most. Now, keep in mind, the people, the, the areas of pruning aren't necessarily bad. They're just things that need to be pruned so that you'll bear more fruit, so that you'll become more holy and experience more joy. So the things I'm gonna to suggest to you from scripture are not necessarily bad things. Some of them are, but not necessarily all bad things. For example, the people you love the most. Are they bad things? Of course not. They're gifts from God to you to be enjoyed. But like Isaac, they can also get in the way of what God is doing in your life. Even those people that are the most dear to you. Um, Michelangelo, of course, uh, the sculptor of the great statue of David that stands 17 feet tall, um, said that all he did was, was to chip away 
and sand and buff the parts of the statue that he didn't see in his mind. That's how he made that statue. So he had a picture in his mind of what this statue would look like, and he just chipped and sanded and buffed away the things that weren't there. That's not in my picture. Off it goes. And so what does God see in you? What's he desire to form in you? It's, it's, it's said in Scripture, isn't it? You are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, the son of David, all right, Jesus, our Savior. So God has a picture of Jesus, our Savior, in mind, and he wants to make us like that. So he chips and sands and buffs all those things in, that are not looking like Jesus away. Um, you know, God may be asking you to give up your right to be married if you're single. Or maybe for those of you who are married, give up your right to a dreamy marriage. Um, maybe to give up your right to have children or perfect children for those of you who have too many. Keep trying. <laughs> Keep producing them. You're never going to have a perfect child. Maybe God is we're talking about the first pruning area, the people you love most. God is asking you to give up your right to that perfect friendship, the one that you desire to have, but you don't. Um, and when I say give up, I don't necessarily mean that God's going to take these people from you, but that he simply wants you to trust them or trust you with them. So uh, giving up simply means giving them over to Christ, um, not allowing them to, to get in the way of a deepening love relationship with your Savior, even though this person is a gift from God. Um, you know, maybe, maybe God wants you to risk that close relationship with a spouse or friend or child because they need to hear something difficult and hard, hard and true from your lips. Are you going to trust God with that? Or are you just not going to say important things that need to be said because you're trying to protect this relationship that you value? These are daily decisions, aren't they? I remember struggling with God about giving him my family. And I know that's kind of a subjective idea and thought, but I think you get the idea of what I'm saying. But I remember struggling with this very thing, giving God my family, knowing that, you know, I, I knew enough of the scriptures to know that, that if I went that direction, there's a good chance that I would experience some heartache and pain. And yet I knew, also knew the, the point of this sermon which is that unless God does these things and, and deals with these things, I'm never going to experience him the way that I would love to experience God, that is. And so it was a scary time in my life knowing that releasing my children, releasing my wife meant painful things. Um, and I was under the impression that once, you know, I, I gave them up to God and, and they grew up and became adults that this, this whole battle would be over and I could go on to something else. For you young parents, I don't want to be a, a, a 
bearer of bad news, but that doesn't happen. You are always a parent, and this experience of heartache and pain and concern, if anything grows, doesn't diminish when your children get older. At least that's my experience. Um, so, God, God prunes my life through the people that I love. Secondly, God prunes me and you uh, in our right to know why God does what he does. Uh, I know that, that we all think we're pretty important and uh, have a, an autonomy uh, of sorts, but uh, we think that, that uh, if we don't have a right to control our lives and, and uh, um, have everything handled, that something's wrong, right? Um, but this assumption is in conflict with what it means to walk by faith. Your right to know why God does what he does isn't part of the agreement. It's, it's, it's not even in the fine print. It's, it's in bold print in the contract. You don't have a right to know why God does what he does. That's one of the definitions of being God. You get to do what you want to do without explaining it. Um, a life of faith means trusting the one who gets to make those decisions. Um, I'm reading a book uh, with uh, my son, and uh, is, he's, the, the book is talking about uh, views of Scripture. And one of, it's a five, it's a, it's a multi-view, like they, they present five views and then the other four authors dialogue in the book about the, the, the point and the value of each of these views. And one gentleman named Bird, a theologian named Bird, uh, it was explaining his view of scripture, his view of God, and he, he titled his view of God as a, with a theology of trust. And that resonated with me. He said, he said he had a theology of trust. I can't explain everything in Scripture. I don't need to because I trust the author of Scripture. I can't explain everything in my life and something, frankly, I don't agree with. But I trust my gardener, my heavenly gardener. For one thing, I'm certain, and I've proven this, that he's smarter than me. And so his ways are higher than my ways and better than my ways. So do you have a theology of trust? That is where God is, that is what God is doing. He's pruning you to that place so that you will embrace with complete trust the heavenly gardener and his activity in your life. Have you gotten there yet? Or are you still demanding an explanation? And your relationship with God is vulnerable because you haven't come to a reasonable explanation yet. Thirdly, God prunes out your love for money and possessions. And the key word here is love. 
because, you know, money and possessions is a, are good things, right? They're, they're blessings, they're gifts. But your love for these things, your, your dependence on these things for your identity and your joy are what's on the table here. That's what's under the pruning knife. You know, this is a very difficult area to release to our heavenly pruner. Um, and it seems that this particular kind of pruning, at least in my experience, uh, has to be repeated. It's like the dandelion root, isn't it? You know, you, you, you pull up a dandelion root, and you do it. if you don't get the entire root, what happens? That thing grows back. And so it's the same in our, in our uh, interests and affections in and with money and possessions. Until the root is killed, that thing grows back. It's a continual process, we, especially in the, in the culture we live in. So is God asking you to release something, to give up something, to trust more to him, to determine where you might be in this process of pruning? You could ask yourself this, how much of what is mine has God asked for? How much of what is yours is God presently asking for you to put on the altar, like Abraham put Isaac on the altar. What is it in your uh, experience with Christ, your Christian life, what is it that God's saying, I want that? Um, is he asking you uh, to give up material things or immaterial things, family? Identity, where is it that God is asking you to trust him? You know, a lot, a lot of times money is a big deal to most of us, and uh, which is why the Bible talks about it so often as it relates to this life of holiness, the pursuit of God. Uh, money gets in the way a lot. Possessions get in the way a lot um, for different reasons. But um, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. In Malachi chapter 3, um, the, the prophet was, was chiding the Israelites because they had not given of their wealth as they should have. God had abundantly blessed them and they had withheld just because they were greedy. And God says, you know, you know why you're experiencing difficulty, pain, hardship, trial, all these difficulties? You know why these, this area, particular area hurts in your life? It's because you haven't given it up to me. And God says this amazing thing to the Israelites through Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10. God says, why don't you just test me in this? He goes, just give it up and see what happens. Give up your tight-fisted clinch on your money and possessions and see if you're not more joyful. Give up your determination to get all you can, can all you get, and then sit on the lid and see if I won't provide everything you need. And this, this 
talk of money and, and, and how it gets in the way of our relationship with God and our experience of personal contentment, peace, and joy is sprinkled all over Scripture. Jesus talked about this a lot. The prophets talked about it a lot. There's examples of this throughout. I mean, the, the call of Abraham was a call out of financial security. <laughs> That's what it was. So, God may be pruning your love for money and possessions. Fourthly, he may be pruning the source of your identity. We've talked about that a little bit, source of your significance. What, what is, is the thing in your life that brings you a sense of worth? What is, it that, what is that one thing that if it were taken away, you would feel lost? Is it your marriage? Is it your physical appearance? Is it your health? What is it? If, if that were taken away, you would feel lost. You would, there would be confusion in your life. That's one thing that's God going after, that thing. Because we know that that thing for the Christian must be, and ultimately will be, Christ. Right? So if it's not that, what is it? You know, this is where you derive your significance. For Abraham, it was Isaac. Um, for Gideon, it was his big army, so God pruned that down to nothing. What is it for you? What is it that you're deriving your significance from? God wants that. And from time to time, if you're like me, you'll drift back into that, receiving significance from that thing. And the Lord will continue to prune back that branch. Uh, but God uses painful experiences to do these things, like in David's life, 1 Samuel 25, he was a proud man, young warrior, and Nabal came out and kind of, you know, offended David, uh, wouldn't bow to David, and David thought, I'm David, you're supposed to bow to me, and he got offended, his pride was hurt, and of course, God dealt with Nabal, but Nabal's wife, Abigail, came out and confronted David's pride through the work of God. God used Abigail to confront David's pride. And it worked, even though it was painful. Um, Job's life. What was Job's identity at the time when God began to prune his life? It was, it was financial security. It was his family. It was his holdings. He was a wealthy man with a large family. And God knew that, and so God began to prune these things in, in Job's life. And did Job completely understand? Not at all. That's what the book of Job's about. The book of Job is about developing a theology of trust. It's not about God's you know, diff, you know, harshness with Job. The, the focus here is, is on God's goodness to Job so that Job would learn to trust him and, and rest in, in that loving heavenly gardener. Job, Job said this towards the end of his pruning process. Though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. Yet I will trust him. Even though it gets to the point where I lose my life, Job was saying, I have developed a theology of trust. Same thing Abraham said. It's the same thing that every Christian says eventually. 
because that's where God's taking us. So the, the point of pruning is simply this, complete trusting surrender. Complete trusting surrender. In Psalm 119, we've been talking about developing a, a heart of holiness and having an affection for God that's genuine, that actually has an effect on how you live and think. But how do you get there? God gets us there through pruning. He gets us to those places. He develops that heart, that affection, that desire for holiness. He creates this, this environment that the only ultimate result is a theology of trust. And you, you've got to be hearing me when I say this isn't an easy path. Which is why Jesus and all of his apostles made this abundantly clear in their sermons and writings. Jim Elliot's attitude is a useful one. He said this, bring struggle when I need it, take away ease at your pleasure. Bring struggle when I need it and take away ease at your pleasure. Is that your attitude towards what God's doing in your life? You see, Christians who, who have experienced deep pruning don't focus on what is left behind, like Lot's wife did. Oh no, look what I've lost. They, they focus and are concerned with, with the direction God is taking them. Okay, God, what are you accomplishing in life? What's, my, what's, this, what's the future here? How can, I, how can I love you more, have more deeper affection for you and, and experience more joy and peace? Um, this is the prayer that was penned by Piper, John Piper. He said this, Lord, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate with who I am. Lord, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. If you're going to ever accomplish anything for Christ, and, and by the way, that's the only thing that matters, uh, if you're ever going to become that godly person, man, woman, teenager, that you say you desire to be, it will have to be the work of God in you. Lord, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate with who I am. If, if left up to me, nothing positive really is going to happen around me in this life. Oh, people may think I'm this or that or the other thing, but in terms of really affecting the kingdom of God and being used by God to, to, to promote that kingdom and, and expand his gospel around this planet, God's going to have to do something that's disproportionate to who I am. So pruning is part of that process, and how you respond to pruning makes all the difference in the world. You can complain, you can compromise, you can rebel, you can run away, or you can submit and experience the joy and comfort and rest that comes to those who keep their eyes on the prize, like Paul said in Philippians 3. 
developing a theology of trust. And so as we close our time this morning, I want you to listen to the Apostle Peter and how he described the pruning process for us Christians. First Peter 1, 6 through 8. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's pruning. So that tested, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold and perishes through fire, tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what this is all about, right? <laughs> this life, your, your trials, the hardship, the, the progress of faith and dependence on God. It is about this, so that our faith may be found to result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ shows up to take us home, to welcome us into his eternal presence, he will be glorified by what has happened in your life. That's what this is all about. It's not about you experiencing, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of ease and comfort, you know, in the lap of luxury. It's about resulting in praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ for what he has done in and through you. Jesus in John 15, 11 said this, and I'll close with this. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Let's pray.